Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Before you start this episode, this is just a reminder that History Hack does have a Patreon account and a Ko-fi account as well. You can either register to subscribe and throw us a few quid every month or simply buy us enough caffeine to continue through to the next episode. Because frankly, we run on fumes most of the time. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I've um, decided, seeing as it's half term, I've brought a miniature co-host with me, someone who doesn't come very often. He is the R2-D2 to my Luke Skywalker, the Frodo to my Gandalf. Ollie, say hello. Hi. Uh, Ollie, what do you know about the Crusades? As much as I do. Brilliant. Okay. (laughs) Both of us are going to learn something today because we have Helen Nicholson here, who is a historian who specialises in the Crusades and the Crusading Knightly Orders such as the Templars, the Hospitallers, and their warfare. And she's written extensively on these subjects with titles like The Knight Templar, Past Imperfect, Sibyl, Queen of Jerusalem, and The Knight's Hospitaller. But she's here today to talk to us about her newest book, Women and the Crusades. So, Helen, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's no problem at all. Uh, as I said in my intro, my knowledge of the uh, Crusades was fairly limited from when I was a kid. Uh, knights in shining armour going over under good King Richard to fight Saladin. And that's pretty much where it ends and you know even less than that don't you yeah pretty much so maybe we should start at the beginning and define what the crusades actually are crusades are were holy wars and they were also called pilgrimages because they were a journey to a sacred place a spiritual journey where the participants expected to get some sort of spiritual reward for example having the penance for their sins wiped out, or even participants believed their past sins would be wiped out so that they wouldn't go to hell. They would at least make it to purgatory. They have a chance of going to heaven if they die during the course of the crusade. Now, the crusade idea began with the papacy and Pope laid out certain things that crusaders would expect. Their property would be protected. Their dependents would be protected while they're away on the campaign. And they were fighting. It's just Christ's business. They were fighting for God. It was God's wars that they were fighting. But not all crusades or what people regarded as crusades were approved by the Pope. For example, the famous children's crusades, which happened in the early 13th century. So after the Third Crusade, the one that everyone's talked about, everyone knows about, as you said at the beginning, They never had papal support. They were a popular movement. That is to say, a groundswell movement, young people setting off to try and recover Jerusalem when those armies of knights in shiny armor that you were talking about earlier uh, didn't weren't going. So the young people will do this. Of course, that didn't work out either. If you couldn't go on crusade, by the early 13th century, popes had decided that you could pay some money instead. You would get the same spiritual reward as if you had gone on crusade. And you could then pay for another warrior to go instead, somebody who could fight in your place. So you have what's called the crusade indulgence, when you get the same indulgence for your sins as if you got a crusade yourself. And crusades went all over the boundaries of Christendom. They were supposed to defend Christians and Christian territory. So the most famous ones were in the Middle East, 
so when Richard the Lionheart was fighting Saladin. But there are also wars in Spain that get the same spiritual reward as fighting against the Muslims of the Holy Land, where the Christian kings of the northern Spain were trying to drive the Muslims of southern Spain out of Spain, which they finally did in 1492. And also wars against the pagans in northeastern Europe. Eventually, Lithuania, the main pagan state in that area, became Christian, but the wars went on. And also against heretics within Europe. So against, famously against the Albigensian heretics in southwestern France and elsewhere in Europe as well. So, in fact, in the, as things went on, almost any war could be declared a crusade by kings just because you're, fi- you're fighting someone doesn't agree with you. So, ironically, during the wars between King John and his barons in the early 13th century, both sides put crosses on their surcoats and declared that this was a holy war. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I've not, I've not really considered that they do that. That, that, that is quite interesting. Um, I know that they were, I know in later medieval things, everyone kept claiming that they were working for the Pope. And when they ended up being two popes or even three popes at one point, they got really confusing. <laughs> one, one of the big problems with the Middle Ages, though, is um, sources. What kind of evidence is there and what problems are there with the existing sources? There are quite a few narrative accounts because these great expeditions obviously inspire people to write about um, Either God helped us on this campaign and this is how he helped us or God did not help us. We lost and this is why we lost. These are quite moralizing. And if they did lose, then their writers were looking for reasons why they lost. So they're looking for scapegoats. And this is one problem and looking for women in the Crusades because an obvious scapegoat is all these women who came along and distracted the warriors from their true course. On the other hand, you have the medics of the period saying, well, men and women need to have regular sex, otherwise they will get ill. So husbands, take your wives with you because you can't do without your wife. So the narrative sources tend to be moralizing. They tend to be full of stereotypical figures of the great hero, like Richard the Lionheart is the great hero, or alternatively, in other versions of the Third Crusade, Richard the Lionheart is the great villain. And as I say, women are either the people who undermine the men, or they can be the women cheering the men on from the sidelines, but actually finding rounded figures in these narrative accounts, often written quite a long time after the crusade, can be quite difficult. And then they even invent women sometimes if they need a moralizing figure to put in there. Why women should not go on crusade. I will tell you the sad story of this princess who didn't actually exist, who was captured by the Turks and never seen again. Apart from that, we have a good many documentary sources People making their wills, people borrowing money to go on crusade and people making donations to religious houses. And this might be husband and wife doing this before they set off or the wife is going by herself because her husband has died. They were going to go together, but now she's going alone or even legal records where so-and-so has not turned up in court because they've gone to Jerusalem. And if this was, for example, during the Fifth Crusade, we assume they've taken part in the Fifth Crusade. Some of these people would not actually be going to fight. They might be going on pilgrimage, but they would be going under the uh, umbrella of the crusade expedition with the aim of getting to Jerusalem with the help of the crusade they're taking part in. So such sources are likely to be not have the same biases as the narrative sources. On the other hand, they don't tell us so much about individuals. They just tell you about the people who are involved at that moment. There's even one 
record from a ship called St. Victor, where we have the passenger list. Uh, it was on its way to join King Louis IX of France's crusade in Egypt. And it got to Messina by July 1250. And they discovered that he wasn't in Egypt anymore. Well, yes, he was going, going to the Holy Land now. So are we going to the Holy Land? Are we going to Egypt, to Damietta, to join him there? So we have the passenger list saying we want to go somewhere else now. And the captain of the ship saying, but you commissioned me to go to one place. Now you want to go somewhere else. That's going to cost you extra. And among this, around about 450 people on the ship as passengers, then about 10% of them are women, of whom about half are with their husbands. And the other half are women either travelling with other women or travelling alone. We'd like far more records like this one. This one has happened to have survived as part of this legal argument about who's paying for this. It does open up the possibility that there's plenty of other material still lurking in the archives, scattered across Europe, and it's a matter of scholars that working their way through the archives. A lot of the material that's cited in my book was found almost by chance by scholars working through material in the archives, and I've tried to pull it all together to provide a more rounded picture of what women were doing, while being aware that there's probably a great deal of other information that hasn't been found yet. Yeah, that must have been really interesting. Of course, there was the problem that respectable women should not be discussed in public, and you certainly shouldn't name her. So chroniclers also get people's names confused, uh-huh. and... What we really love is the nation charter by whoever it is, because then you give her, she gives her name and her full title. So you know who she is. The mm. chroniclers might get her name wrong. It's quite common for them to name a woman by her mother's name or her aunt's name by mistake, because they don't actually know what her first name is. And subsequent scholars may get her title wrong as well. So what you want is the donation charter. I'm giving this to a religious house. And before I go on crusade, and then it has all this information set out. So a lot of the women in these sources, the narrative sources, are actually nameless. The woman and her husband did this. So there is a stereotypical view that um, any women in the region would have gone to support their husband, as we said. But you also mentioned that there were women who would be travelling alone or uh, with other groups of women. Can you tell us about these groups? One group of women who were planning their own crusade, but that never got off the ground. And the women who are going out on the St. Victor in 1250... We only have the information they were there at that moment, so we just have a snapshot. Occasionally, you get a wider picture when, for example, during Louis the Ninth's Crusade in France, there was a moment where one of the noble warriors had been surrounded by the Muslims and was about to be t- captured. And the, the merchants and the women who were supporting the crusade by selling food and other supplies to them raised the alarm and a rescue group was sent out. So, in this case, we don't know the names of any of these women. There were obviously a, a group of people who were supporting the crusade, providing the logistical support. And this is the only, only time they're mentioned they were there. In the course of the Fifth Crusade, so around 1220, when the, that crusade had captured the city of Damietta in northern Egypt, and then it lost it again later on, the women turn up again briefly mentioned with their children because they've been assisting in building siege defences. And so they were just doing the heavy labouring work. And they get paid 
a small amount, far less than the knights or the other men at arms get paid, but they've got actually payment in there. So we think, we know that they were there. Exactly who these women were, though, there aren't any names. Perhaps their husbands were on the crusade. They might be widows whose husbands have died during the course of the journey. Or they might be people like the people who were absent from the law courts in England at that time because they joined the pilgrimage. So they, they say tend to be without names. Occasionally we get a name. Again, King Louis the Ninth's Crusade, there's just one mention by his friend, John, Lord of Joanville, that when they were, the French army was retreating, I say French, it was supposed to be in this national force, but it's largely French, retreating again north to, towards Damietta. The king was very sick and they, his companions laid him in the lap of a bourgeois female bourgeois of Paris and John de Joinville says nothing else about her. She is presumably the Hacenda Physica, the physician Hacenda, to whom Louis the Ninth later made a donation to gave her a pension her, and her husband for all the things that she'd done for him during the crusade. So Louis' physician is on the crusade or rather his male and his female physician. And we have a name she's Hacenda. And they're mentioned again when they're back in Paris. And then some years later, there's a reference to another document. Uh, we don't know what training they'd had. They, you didn't have to have um, any university training in those days to be a physician. But presumably she was very skilled at her job because Louis survived. Absolutely. You don't get to be the, the king's me- um, medic if you don't know what you're doing, if you're not good yes, at what you do. Yes, indeed. <laughs> there's, there's the added risk that if you do botch it, then um, you may not be in the world for very long. Mm. Yes, for both, either you'll be in trouble for, with the king or they would all just have been completely destroyed by the Muslim army. Also during that crusade, the Queen of France was there, but she, she stayed at Damietta and she had, she gave birth twice during the course of the crusade. There was a war that long, but she also had her serving women with her and they're mentioned at one point by John Lord of Joinville again because um, one of them managed to set fire to the Queen's cabin on the way back by mistake. <laughs> so they're rushing about madly trying to put the fire out. And uh, everybody thinks they're going to drown, etc. No, it, it was, it was, they were saved, they were saved. And it was entirely an accident, as John explains how it happened. It was, uh, just, they just managed, she just managed to set fire to a piece of cloth. That's the trouble about using candles for lighting. It must have been a constant hazard on these expeditions. Especially on wooden ships. <laughs> <laughs> Wood spreads fire. Thanks. <laughs> well, we've, we've talked briefly about some of the military roles that uh, women would have been involved in, but um, what other kind of roles were they doing? It's apart from throwing stones at the enemy or standing on the sidelines carrying water yeah. for the warriors. The noble women of the Crusade estates who owned their own castles in their own right, who inherited them, would also defend them if they came under attack. Now, that's not strictly crusading, but of course it could be part of a crusade campaign. So, for example, the famous Battle of Hattin, when Saladin met the forces of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and, that the, and he won, he defeated King Guy and the army. The army was on its way to relieve the castle of Tiberias, which was being defended by its lady, Eshiva, who happened to be married to the Count of Tripoli at that point, but she'd had other husbands before, and it was her castle. And she held out until after the Battle of Hattin, when it was clear that she wasn't going to get relieved, and then she 
came to an agreement with Saladin and was able to retreat to Tyre with what was left of her household. And another lady of the kingdom, um, Stephanie or Etienne of Transjordan, had also to negotiate with Saladin for the surrender of her castles, which up until that point she had been defending in order to get her eldest her eldest son from Saladin because he captured during the Battle of Hattin. So women had to be able to defend castles. Then they also noble women raised troops and so husband in the case of the Albigensian Crusade, for example, Clement de Montfort Senior is waging wars, his wife Alice de Montmorency is away raising troops. So while not actually preaching the crusade herself, she hasn't got a license to preach, she's encouraging the lords of northern France to send their people down. And when she returns, she has an army behind her. And she kept doing that throughout the crusade. It was the only way to ensure they had a continual supply of people because they didn't stay that long. You came on the crusade during the Albigensian crusade. That was when it became established. You only had to stay for 40 days. So people came and they went away again quite quickly. Occasionally, yes, um, women would have to actually fight on the ground, but usually only in an emergency situation where the enemy is broken into the camp. And then everybody lays hands on whatever weapons they might have. During the Third Crusade, we have some quite detailed accounts. There is, for example, when there was a naval attack on the besieging Christian camp at Acre, the Muslim ships were trying to relieve Acre, which at that point was held by Saladin, and the Christian ships went out, the Crusader ships went out to meet them. And a Muslim ship that then is dragged ashore, the people are dragged off, and it's the women who ran, run down to the shoreside and kill the men with little knives. They didn't have large swords to do it. So they'd made, these men died ignominiously because they were killed by women who were not strong enough to kill them properly. So they took a long time about it. And think, yes, right. Wow, sounds And brutal. the shame of being killed by a woman, yes. There's a noble warrior who would not expect to be killed by a woman. Incidentally, um, Simon de Montfort the Elder was also killed effectively by women because they were working the stone thrower that hurled the stone that killed him at the siege of Toulouse. Yes, and that was obviously the work of God to show that Simon de Montfort was in the wrong because he was killed by women in an unknightly death. Here we have um, the stereotype problem again. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 there's um, quite some formidable women that you that you wouldn't necessarily have heard of that are doing some really amazing stuff out there. And like I said, it, everything gets lost in the stereotype of male knights in armour and lords and kings and Lots you wouldn't necessarily think about that um, women would have such an active role. Of course, everybody in a military campaign has to turn their hand to something. The army can't afford to have any useless mouths. Everybody has to be prepared to work in some way or other. And the descriptions of preparing a city for defence, for example, with wives, mothers, young women, children, Small children carrying stones to fill in ditches or build up ramparts and working with shovels and spades and garden forks. And you think, yes, the writer is possibly exaggerating slightly, but the picture is of absolutely everybody laying to with everything they've got to defend the city in that particular case or to defend the besiegers' camp 
if we're looking at a crusading army besieging a city. Yeah, I mean, the idea of getting little children to build trenches and walls, that sounds like quite a good idea, don't you think? No, you will not put me through labour. <laughs> well, you'd enjoy um, it, though. Yeah, out in the sunshine. Out in the yeah, sunshine, digging I away. Like, I like Down in a muddy there. ditch. <laughs> you like muddy ditches. No. One of the uh, one of the brutal facts of war, though, is that civilians are often brutally maltreated by opposing armies. So, how did women on on both sides? You explore both sides of this. Um, how do they experience um, being defeated and being prisoners? There's the constant question among those who are about to be captured: Do you want to be captured, or would you rather die? Is it more honourable to go down fighting, or would you? prefer to take the risk that you'll be enslaved but you might get ransomed and you might survive so those who chose death are honoured by their co-religionists so for example there are the heart-rending accounts from the Jewish communities in the Rhineland when the first crusaders who were marching down through the Rhineland, this is just one group of the crusaders which should be addressed in 1096 attacked the Jews and stirred up the townspeople to attack the Jews the Jews being attacked by the worshippers of the corpse, as they put it, commenting on the common imagery of Christianity, worshipping the body of Christ on the cross. They're not prepared to give in to these people, so they choose death instead. And mothers killed their children and then killed themselves and fathers killed their wives and children. It's heartrending. By the time it got to the Second Crusade, the Jewish communities had obviously rethought this one a little bit. and decided the best thing to do if they were going to survive was to keep their heads down somewhat. So there was one one account of a woman who, having been dragged by the Christians into the church and told that she was to become a Christian, the spits on the crucifix, whereupon they beat her up and leave her lying on the floor. But she's rescued later on by a Christian woman who comes in to tidy up the church. And this woman takes her under her arm and helps her to escape. So just because there's a religious difference, doesn't necessarily mean that women are against each other. They may help each other, in fact, out of sheer human charity. Doesn't always happen, though. And there's at least one account from the Hussite Crusades in the 1420s when the female Hussites were killing Catholic women or the Catholic women were killing female Hussites. And so they thought they could trust each other. They found, in fact, they couldn't. Again, heart-rending stories during the Third Crusade of the women who'd been captured after the Battle of Hattin, who didn't know what had happened to their husbands, their brothers, their children, and you know, am I the only one left in my family? And the Muslim writer um, Ibn al-Athir has a story of two Christian women who'd been captured and enslaved, meeting each other and falling on, over each other's shoulders and crying and weeping and laughing and being so glad to see each other again. You must have this sudden very short insight into what their lives were like. And we have no idea whether they were ever ransomed. Because there were groups who were set up among all these religious groups involved to try and ransom their own people back. This Sometimes this worked. Sometimes the other side wasn't prepared to release them, particularly if they claimed that their prisoners had now converted to the new religion. The Syrian nobleman and warrior, Usama ibn Munkid was most shocked that some Christians who had been captured, and this woman has been captured and she's converted to Islam and she's much honoured among the Muslim people and, and she chooses to run away and marry this 
Christian laborer, somebody of no count whatsoever. What did she do that for? I mean, she'd come into the true faith and now she's gone back to her old dirt. And likewise, when the hospitalers, one of these military religious orders I study, in the later period, um, during the time of the hospitalers on Malta, had captured a ship on its way to Mecca from Constantinople. And two young women and a young man, all of the same family. The young man, unfortunately, we don't know what happened to him. He was probably sent to the galleys to work as a slave and he would have died there. Two girls, however, were given as gifts to the Queen of France and one of her noblewomen, where we were told they converted to Christianity and married Frenchmen. Well, their mother back in Constantinople was trying to get them and negotiated with the Sultan, bullying the Sultan, telling him he must get her daughters back. And the Sultan did everything he could. But the French crown was very reluctant to let these young ladies go because they were almost a prize of war. Islamic noblewomen who'd converted to Christianity, therefore proving that Christianity is the superior religion. So these two young women were never released. And we don't actually know what they thought. I mean, they made the best of the situation they were in. But their actual opinion of what happened to them is not recorded. You also mentioned in, in the book there was, um, I forget where, um, I've had far too much information come into me today and things have fallen out the back of my head, uh, about uh, a, crusade, a, crusade, a group of crusaders in the northern end, north, north part of the region had captured uh, a city. They rounded up all the women and made them march naked back to their territory. And then the women came out, the, the Christian women came out and told the men off and clothed the women and said, if you do, if you maltreat your prisoners like this, imagine what they will do when they come back to us. In fact, this was the, on the Muslim Christian frontier between, is, uh, uh, it must be Aleppo. There were Muslim women who'd been captured by the Georgians who were Christians. Yes. But it's still the interreligious warfare. Yes, as you say, if you treat yeah. the women like this, they will treat us. And of course they did. So the, um, this is Ibn al-Athir, I think, was obviously yeah. very impressed. And as a warning to his own country folk, don't treat people like this because you'll get reprisals next time. Um, next time your people are captured, because this, again, this is all part of the stereotype. The how the women were treated was regarded on all sides as a measure of the civilization, the kindness, the humanity of the other of the other side. So if you're encountering a group that treats women well, then that proves that they that they may still be your enemies. But you can deal with these people. They're obviously proper human beings. If they treat them in a barbarous way, if they slaughter them or if they make them march naked across the countryside, as you say, and that shows that they're just barbarians and then you treat them like barbarians. Absolutely. Were these uh, sort of reprisals uh, quite common? Yes, uh, it does depend on the crusading front, however. Some are, and also who's in charge, because, for example, Saladin is always depicted as being a very just and pious ruler, and people at the time expected to be treated more generously by Saladin. And he made a point of doing the, what we would say in the West, chivalrous thing. So after Jerusalem fell to him, for example, he let the noble women depart, rather than holding them as prisoners. He didn't have to do that. Because he could have held them as prisoners, all sorts of them. He, for example, so he let Queen Sybil leave, for example, and Stephanie of Transjordan, and a Greek noblewoman who'd been living in the city. Whereas on the northeastern European frontier, 
where you have the, the pagan groups, mainly the Lithuanians, and Poles, who are Catholic Christian, and the Teutonic Order, who are Catholic Christian, but seem to be prepared to side with anybody who will support their war. To the north of these groups on the coastline, which Morania, again, is Christian, but quite happy to ally with the pagans against the Teutonic Order. So the chronicles of the campaigns are a continual line of they took our castle and they killed all our women and all the children and they killed all the men or they captured all the women and put them away into slavery. And then we went after them, and rescued them. Except occasionally the women are actually allowed to defend themselves. And there are a few stories of women who are being pursued by the enemy, managing to rescue themselves. One when she turns on her pursuer and, and strikes him down. So occasionally accounts will let, will let the women have agency. But it's more chivalric to depict the men rescuing the women. Yeah, there, there's, uh, there's again back to the stereotype of um, the knight in shining armor rescuing fair maid. Yes, no idea that um, sometimes he might need rescuing. He might need her to help him. Um, so, um, but away from the battlefront, um, you describe how women have um, also played quite a major role in diplomacy and conversion. Certainly, diplomacy, because they're supposed to be non-combatants according to most societies' regulations. Um, women were, in, were involved in diplomacy, letter writing. So during the course of the Second Crusade, um, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was married to the King of France, Louis VII, she's later more famously married to Henry II of England, but during the Second Crusade, she's still married to Louis VII of France. She was receiving letters from the Empress of Constantinople, who was actually born a German, Bertha, but had changed her name when she became Empress of Constantinople. And so that's part of the uh, diplomacy between the King of France and the Emperor of Constantinople, as if the, the leading women can set a friendly diplomatic base and then the men can negotiate, not through their wives, but against this background of friendly relationship between the women. And I mean, men don't have to demean themselves so much to talk to each other because their wives have already established this friendly relationship or this diplomatic relationship and likewise the empress of Constantinople ensured for the leader of the German um, contingent in Conrad that his army had safe conduct and food so that they could travel on their way to Jerusalem intervening with her husband to ensure the German army was well treated. Later on, Eleanor was negotiating with her uncle Raymond of Antioch and tried to work out which was the best strategy to take should they attack the northern Syrian cities that were held by Nur al-Din's son of Zengiv Mosul, or should they go south to Jerusalem. And Raymond obviously got ideas for campaigns and he wanted the King of France to help him. And Louis wasn't very keen about this. He wanted to go south to Jerusalem. And Eleanor was trying to negotiate between them. And that didn't go so well. In fact, Louis seems to have decided that his wife was being far too friendly with her uncle. Presumably they disagreed over strategy. And rumours started to circulate that she was having an affair with him. She may just have been telling her her husband she may just have been telling her husband that he was an idiot and her uncle had a much better idea of the strategic problems in the area. But we will never know because we only have Louis's side of this. And we don't know what Eleanor herself was thinking. 
So women could play an important role in diplomacy. And because they were regarded as non-combatants, they could be seen as less threatening. And also it could be less demeaning, as I say, for the um, enemy commander on the other side to talk to the woman than it would have been to talk to her husband, because he could be seen to be acting in a chivalric manner as a nobleman, being generous to the noblewoman, rather than having to yes, lower himself to talk to the men on the other side. Women also were involved in um, marriage alliances. Sometimes the woman is the, is the negotiator, um, and sometimes she's actually the woman is sent off to marry somebody on the other side. This was quite common in the Middle East between the Georgians and the Armenians and Muslim princes in the North Syrian border area. And also um, in between uh, Egypt, Nubia and Ethiopia, where is Muslim peoples in the region and the various Christian peoples had marriage alliances. And the convention was either nobody has to convert or the person that moves converts. So the young princess who goes to marry the emperor of Ethiopia comes a Christian. Or the young princess from Nubia who goes to marry a Muslim prince becomes a Muslim. It's not demeaning in any way. However, when Richard the Lionheart suggested that his sister, who was the Dowager Queen of Sicily, should marry Saladin's brother, Aladil, that fell through. It's not clear whether he was ever serious about it. It was said among the Muslims that Joanna had objected to having to marry a Muslim. And Joanna would have been familiar with the idea of interreligious marriages because they happened in Sicily, but only among the lower classes. And she might then have said it was too demeaning for her. But as usual, we haven't got Joanna's side of the story. In fact, we haven't even got Richard's side of the story here. We only have the reports by Saladin's side, who are most bewildered. They never expected the King of England to come up with this idea. So it could just be Richard being a sly fox, as usual, and coming up with something that he thought would completely floor his Muslim opponents, which it did. There's sufficient time for him to get his own forces together and rethink his own strategy. Yeah, that, that, that sounds good. Sort of a, a delaying tactic of seeing Saladin sat there scratching his head going, do, do you think he means that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Aladdin was thinking, well, it sounds like a good idea. It doesn't sound like the sort of thing they were doing before. What are they playing yeah. at now? And they didn't trust Richard an inch quite justifiably. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Sticking, if we head back to the home front, um, a good chunk of the um, noble men and indeed um, lots more of the poor men who have gone off to fight, um, does that mean that... Um, women staying at home having to give up sort of their traditional roles and take on what was the society uh, society's more traditionally male roles if that makes sense <laughs> of course sometimes when the husband or son or even father goes off on crusade the woman would have been the heir in any case so leaving her in charge of her the estates would be entirely appropriate but even when it's somebody like Eleanor of Aquitaine's eldest daughter Maria of France who was left in charge of the County Champagne when her husband, Henry I, Count of Champagne, goes off on crusade at the end of the 1160s. Um, she'd already running her own estate, so she'd had practice of this, and now she's just running the whole of the county. And if there had been any trouble, she had her extensive family network to draw upon the supporter, but actually she managed very well, and she was well respected by the nobles of Champagne, and the counties remains peaceful, and eventually Henry comes home 
although very severely shaken by his journey, he'd practically been captured by bandits on the way home and had to be ransomed by the emperor of Constantinople. So he came in at home in a very, very bad state and died shortly after his return. So it was rather traumatic. And this common problem for women who were left at home to run the estates, that they didn't know where their menfolk had gone. There was no quick news service, of course, so they didn't know where they were. They might get a message to say they're on their way home. More likely, they just have travellers' stories about what might have happened to them. They might have, end up having to ransom their husband, son, father. In the case of Maria, in fact, say the emperor of Constantinople stepped in and did that f- for her. And later on, Maria's son, Henry II, went out to join the Third Crusade, and he kept sending her instructions, so it wasn't a sole regency this time. She was regent for the county, but she was also getting messages from him to tell him what tell her what to do. And eventually then she gets the news that he's, he became ruler of Jerusalem, he hadn't been crowned, and then he was dead. He fell out of a window, in fact. It wasn't a terribly honourable death. And yes contemporary writer who was very friendly towards Maria said that she was so shocked by this that it was brought on her de- her premature death. And in fact, it said her second son who inherited the county. So sometimes regencies went quite smoothly. Sometimes neighbours decided that as the nobleman of the family was away, now was the opportunity to take over lands which might be a bit marginal, or maybe they could claim that they might really belong to them. So when the Count of Flanders set off to Jerusalem uh, in the 1140s. His wife, Sybil, who was actually the daughter of the Count of Anjou, so again, comes from a good military tradition, finds that she's under attack from the, her neighbour, the Count of Enol, who rather fancies some of her land. And at that point, she wasn't in a position to go and fight him because here's another reason why women don't get involved in warfare very much. She was expected to have a baby. And you cannot go out to lead an army when you're in childbed. However, when the Count had retreated and she got over having the baby, Sybil takes her army out and attacks his land, harasses them like a lioness, as one contemporary writer wrote it, and things got to such a pitch the Pope had to intervene and make peace between them. But she wasn't blamed for doing this. What she did was regarded as totally justifiable because Eno had attacked her lands without any justification and they should have been under protection. So he had no business doing that when her husband was away. Lots of dangers can occur and this happens for people of lower status as well. There are various cases end up in the law courts because a father had gone away to Jerusalem, left daughter in the care of her father, for example, and she was murdered or she was kidnapped or father, um, father comes back and finds his daughter's married somebody. Was that done with her will or by somebody who had his eye on the family lands and thought this was the easiest way of getting hold of them? So then there's a law court case to try and sort this out. And these things can be still being argued about in the next generation. There's a dangerous matter being left behind as well. And even if your family member is reported dead, is he actually dead? He might come back years later. Or sometimes if, if it's the woman who's been reported dead, she's on crusade and the rest of the family doesn't know what's happened to her. Can her husband remarry? What happens if they turn up years later and the canonical View the view of church law is actually if the person turns up later, it turns out your subsequent marriage wasn't valid. You're an adulterer. Bad luck. You've got to go back to your original spouse, which does seem a little hard when you didn't know what happened to them. 
Well, absolutely. If you've gone through the, the, the mourning process and you haven't seen them in about four years, marry again. And then some, your first husband rolls up. But yeah, I've been in the yeah. crusades. What have I missed? Hey, who's that man? <laughs> yes. And indeed, if it's years and years later, somebody comes back, nobody will recognize them. Yeah. So here's, I've come back to reclaim my county. And the daughter was Ed when he disappeared and her husband, who was a distant relative, hardly recognized, was also far too young. And almost everybody who remembers him is dead. And those who might have seen him when they were in their young adulthood, it's so many years ago, you know, and he's growing a beard, lost weight, gained weight. How do you know if it's the same person? Yeah, yeah. And no DNA testing. This is true, yeah. Um, if the, if you had, because I know there were quite some stiff punishments for adultery, would the, if you had married again, believing your husband to be dead, would you be punished for it, um, in the same way? Well, officially, yes, you'd have to go through the penance for being an adulterer. It would, of course, actually depend on your priest and what they thought. So I think in it would depend on the individual cases. Uh, did this person genuinely wait? year and a day and much longer to ascertain whether the other person is dead did they or did they remarry in in decent haste and it may well be that there was really no option because you know woman in possession of a large estate does need somebody to lead her army in the field and it's probably not practical for her to do it so she may effectively have to remarry have somebody to defend her land not to mention the fact that her lord, whoever that might be, probably wants to marry her off to one of his favoured noblemen. So, again, she may not have any choice. Yeah, so you get the double sort of double jeopardy of not wanting to marry this nobleman and then having, uh, having to go through penance for being an adulterer, even when it wasn't your idea in the first place. Mm. Mm. Really unfortunate time. Uh, another podcast I listen to from time to time, and as they keep saying, the past was really the worst at times. Yes, I don't know why anyone thinks that it was a, a good time or good place to live. Oh, no, it's a, the rose-tinted glasses of hindsight, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what sort of spiritual support did they do? Because it wasn't all about um, physically going to the Holy Land or looking after your lands. They did. Uh, they 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 tried to communicate through God as well, didn't they? Yes, prayer, in fact, was regarded as an essential form of support for crusaders. So popes organized formal liturgies and instructed communities to go on processions with the, the men doing, you know, going this way around the church, the women going that way around the church, or saying certain prayers, singing, and so certain penitential acts like everybody will fast for three days, whatever, to support the crusaders. In fact, in the late late 14th century, early 15th century, the Teutonic Order wrote to the Pope. Some leading members of the Teutonic Order wrote to the Pope to point out that they had these very spiritual women who were assisting them in their work through prayer. And this was their new kind of knighthood, which was originally a description of the Templars by Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century. Their new knighthood who fights alongside them, but it's prayer. They were actually hoping that the Pope would canonise one of these holy women who'd been praying for them, Dorothea of Montauk, who died a few years previously. So they thought prayer was 
very important. It's part of the battle line. But you don't have to actually be on the battle line to pray, of course. You can pray from safety back in Western Europe, away from the frontier. So there's the prayer, there's formal formal liturgies, there's incorporating prayers for the Holy Land into the normal masses in church services that are said every week across Christendom. And this, in fact, comes the case in the 14th century. Effectively, everybody is praying for Jerusalem, which, of course, by this time has been lost to the Christians for, um, yes, since the 1240s, they lost any chance of getting Jerusalem back. Nevertheless, pray for Jerusalem every week. If you're if you're a Catholic Christian, you will be praying for Jerusalem every week. Apart from that, whenever a new expedition to the east was organized, there would be indulgences to buy. So quick, go out. Don't just buy your indulgences for yourself. You you put your money forward to pay for a warrior to go out to the east and or whichever happens, happens to be the crusading front this time. And you will get so many days off your time in purgatory and certain sins forgiven. Be allowed to eat eggs in Lent. Or um, you can buy them for other people. Perfect Christmas present. 100 days indulgence. And some of these were actually clearly aimed at women. So, for example, I say eating eggs in Lent or legitimatizing children who had carelessly been born in adultery or something of that sort. How could women go about commemorating the Crusades and the Fallen? Well, a woman of noble birth had far more resources at her hands, of course, to do this. So organising monuments for male relatives who died on crusade. There's a touching story in John of Joanville's account of Louis the Ninth's crusade of a noble woman who'd actually, having the body of somebody who died in campaigns in Egypt years before, having been returned to the Christian camp, she organised the funeral. She paid for everything. She even gave money to each of the pe- noble people who were going to attend the funeral so that they could put it into the offertory to make sure that her relative was properly commemorated and the suitable prayers were said. And at other occasions, for example, I mentioned Mary of France, Countess de Champagne, after her husband, Henry I, had returned to Champagne and died after his time in the East. He'd already set up his own tomb. He'd all commissioned this and had it built during his lifetime. But she she appears to have added one of the inscriptions on the side to say what a holy person he had been, how pious, how he'd given his life for Christendom and so on. This is obviously written after his death. And so Maria is the obviously obvious person to have done it. Sometimes, yes, we can point to it's his daughter, it's his wife who's created this tomb and is responsible for the inscription. And of course, organizing commemoration for crusading is great for the family. We commemorate our great pious ancestor, but also for whichever religious establishment you put the tomb in, presumably some monastery that's attached to the family that the family supports, because they will also have a crusader buried among them. Holy person who is commemorated here, and we're associated with them. We may get pilgrims from the family coming here to see it, making rich endowments. So it's a plus for the religious foundation where they end up as well as for the family. There are other things one can do as well. You could simply commission prayers for the um, your the fallen regularly make your, make your donation to your local religious house to pray for a member of your family. 
one lady um, is older from Bridgewater who had been out on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The time when the king of Cyprus was attacking Alexandria, so this is in the 14th century, rather unfortunately her pilgrimage coincided with his attack on Alexandria, whereupon the authorities in Jerusalem, which of course by this time is ruled by the Mamluks of Egypt, uh, had immediately jumped on any Christian pilgrims who were in Jerusalem at the time and arrested them. And Isolde reports that she was horribly tortured and only escaped by a miracle. So having got back to the West, she wants a commemoration for herself. She wants to set up a chapel with prayers to be said to thank God and Our Lady for rescuing her. Pope says, no, no, you don't need any extra chapels. We've got enough chapels in Bridgewater. We will just have, um, you can just set up a special donation to your local church and they will say prayers for you there to say thank you. And that will be sufficient. But the fact she wanted a commemoration is is indication of the importance of commemorating these things. You want prayers to continue to be said. You want this to be remembered. You don't want it to be forgotten. God helped you. God helped your family. And yes, your family will be remembered forever because they were involved in this expedition to the east, or in Isolde's case, rescued by God. It's in her case, ironically, the crusade was a lot of problems. But anyway. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if I'd, uh, if I'd escaped, um, being imprisoned, managed to get back home, I, I'd want people to thank God that I did it and happily pay for a chapel. Mm. You want, you want, the, you want your story and your name to continue and, and indeed, um, get into, into cut down your purgatory time. So mm. yeah, it's quite a, it's quite a driving factor in the, in the, in the period to escape purgatory as quickly as possible. Yes. A post-mortem care, as I call it. <laughs> <laughs> so how active were women as well in uh, cultural patronage we can link cultural patronage to memorialization because some of it overlaps mm. so putting up a, a fresco or a stone relief commemorating your family's involvement in the crusades or your own involvement in the crusades is, is a work of art so cultural but also memorialization of the crusades but then also in the book, I talk about women writing letters. Not many of these survive, and sometimes they may be forgeries. We certainly know that while Louis IX was in Egypt, his wife, Margaret, was writing to her sister, who was married to the King of England. Eleanor was wife of Henry III of England, keeping them up to date with the Crusades. Women didn't write histories with their names on at this point, although we may there may be nuns writing historical works, but they don't put their names on them, unlike the monks who do. But the certainly the eldest daughter of Alexios Komnenos, Byzantine Emperor during the First Crusade, um, Anna, picked up a history that her husband had been working on after his death and continued to write about her father and this this um Alexiad as it she calls it includes an account of the First Crusade. So here we have a woman's take on the First Crusade. Anna was a child at the time of the First Crusade. So we have a combination of the history that her husband had found, her own memories and the research she'd also done herself and her own experience of being with her father out on campaign as a child, all mixed up together in her depiction of the Europeans who she calls Celts, which is a derogatory term. These, these Celts coming like a great mass across Europe towards Constantinople before they go on to Jerusalem. And when they're charging, a Celtic warrior could go straight through a city wall. And also describing one of the leaders of the First Crusade, Bohemond, 
who goes on to be Prince of Antioch, in terms that suggest she's actually describing a magnificent war horse. As has been pointed out, she describes him physically as a very big man, wide nostrils and huge chest. And you think, but one thing about his brains, the man obviously has no brains. He's basically a, a barbarian. So she might as well describe it, be describing a horse. If she was as a child, presumably she saw Bowman and was quite scared by him. This great big man that strode about the place and looked like he owned it, but she certainly didn't. We don't have other eyewitness accounts of crusades by women apart from letters like Margaret of Provence. There were women in the West who commissioned works about Jerusalem or about the Crusades, poetry, for example, and there's at least one beautiful um, liturgical book, I think a Psalter, with pictures of Jerusalem, which may have been produced by a nun who, for a nun who wanted to uh, have pictures of Jerusalem to help her um, contemplate the glories of the Holy Land and concentrate her mind on these holy places. As far as poetry goes, um, back to Maria of France again, she um, commissioned at least one poem, possibly more, from the poet Chrétien de Troyes, the story of Lancelot, the Knight of the Cart, which mentions people going on crusade, because they're not allowed to take part in a tournament. But she didn't say anything else about it. Or at least the poem doesn't say anything else about it. Which suggests that um, Maria had ended up to here with crusades and wasn't that excited about them. After all, her husband had been absent on, in the Holy Land for a long time. And so, yes, the time that this was being commissioned was the time when her husband would have been planning to go out to the East. So sometimes um, noble women don't seem to be that excited about crusades. Others were very interested in keeping mementos of the crusade. So I'm endowing my son with these things, a will might say, including uh, this that my father or my grandfather brought back from the crusades with him. So they can be um, perpetuating uh, cultural links with the Holy Land. And the German version of the Song of Roland famous poem about Franks fighting the Muslims in Spain, which is entirely fictional because they weren't fighting the Muslims, they were actually in alliance with them, but that's another story. The, the priest Conrad, who wrote the German version of the Song of Roland, mentions that it's been sponsored by a noble woman who is probably Matilda of England, who was married to Henry the Lion, Count of Saxony. And she was the daughter of Eleanor of Aquitaine again, and Henry the Second of England. Oh, we're both very interested in crusading. So this may be another example of women's cultural patronage supporting the crusade. Yeah, because I mean, I, the crusades go on for hundreds of years, so I could imagine that mm-hmm. there would have been at some point several people getting rather tired of it. It's like, let's talk about the crusades some more. So, like, oh no, please let's not. Let's <laughs> not. It's a good way for young men to get themselves killed. Alternatively, there are, yes, depictions and literature of the women encouraging the young men to go on crusade because this is the way to win honour. Until they don't come back, and then it's not a way to win honor. Well, it, they have won great honor, and they are also dead, and they are not coming back, and we are very upset about it. It must have been the same for every great war, though. And imagine the young women encouraging the young men to go off and fight in the First World War, which to some degree was also depicted as a holy war against evil. And they uh, waved their young men off, and many of them never came back. Yeah, yeah. And um, I could also imagine there's the excuse of you're not going to disappear off to the Holy Land for four years and leave me to run this, run this land on my own. <laughs> yes. And 
when Richard the Lionheart goes on crusade, his mum, Eleanor of Aquitaine, must have known what was involved and that it was like to be very problematic. So after he's gone, he heads back to England to keep an eye on the government. She was never officially regent while Richard was at the Holy Land, but she was always there supporting the government and reported again by the contemporary English chroniclers as having been a very important character there to keep the government on an even keel and stop Richard's little brother John seizing the government, which he tried to do, of course. Absolutely. Um, you know about King John, don't you, Ollie? Robin Hood? Mm. Yeah, there's a nod. <laughs> yeah. Helen, this has been really, really interesting. Um, would you mind uh, reminding everyone um, what the name of the book is? It's called Women of the Crusades. Note it's Women and the Crusades, so it's sort of anything, everything you wanted or didn't want to know about women's involvement of the crus- in the Crusades, not only fighting but also encouraging Crusaders and memorialising Crusaders, as we've been talking about, and looking after Crusaders' lands and trying to discourage people from going on Crusade, promoting totally ridiculous Crusades, and then, yes, romanticising about Crusades, remembering Crusades in poems and stories after they'd gone. And in the end, I started off thinking, oh, we'll have a list of women Crusaders. By the time I got halfway through the book, I thought, well, half these women have got no names. But secondly, there are so many of them, and their involvement in some cases is tangential, but they're nevertheless important, like they're praying for Crusaders. Mm. There's actually no point in having a list of names. Because in the end, it's everybody is involved in crusading and the women, too. Really did enjoy reading it. It breaks open the stereotypes we were saying at the beginning. It was really interesting. If you are listening to this, uh, we will have it on the History Hack bookshop. That way we get a small amount of the money. Helen will get more of the money. Jeff Bezos can't build a giant spaceship and go on Space Crusade. So that's that's good for everyone. I bet he'd like to. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, if I had that kind of money, that's what I'd be thinking about. Helen, thanks again for coming to speak to us today. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book